0: we're reading from hebrews 12:22 to 28 but you have come to mount zion to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven you have come to god the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect to jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At the time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaking. That is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Praise be to God. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks, E.
1: All right, guys, grab your seats. All right, one more session here this morning before we dive into a verse-by-verse chapter-by-chapter exposition of the book of Ecclesiastes, just setting up the roadmap for our year 2023. We're still in January, and so we are laboring, as you all are aware, to become a people whose posture is rest as a way of being, resilience as a way of doing. This morning's topic and time here from Hebrews chapter 12 is just roadmapping a way of resilience to carry us through the rest of the year. Songs have been sung. Smiles have been shared one with another, and now in the Protestant traditions, the sermon, a time to sit back and receive as if the Lord himself were speaking to us presently. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. I'd like to invite each of you there in your seats as we pray this morning so just under your breath, repeat those words to our triune God, because in so doing, whether you feel it or not, no matter what your circumstances are today, good or rough, sad or rejoicing. When we declare our love to our father, his son and the Holy Spirit, we are living in the realest reality. We are doing what we were designed to do, which is be loved and love. And so I invite you this morning, there just under your breath, Father, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. And one more time, not by vain repetition, but just to habituate our minds, our psychology, our emotions, our bodies, our spirits to truth. Father, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Holy Spirit, I love you. We ask now that you would illuminate this text and set a course for us this year for each of these beautiful souls. Set a posture of heart where resilience is our way of being. We exalt you in Jesus' name. All of God's people said, amen. So Lex and I were absolutely exhausted. We had been backpacking high up in the eastern Sierras, and we were making our way home in that five, six, seven-hour drive, whatever it is, from there to San Diego. And we were coming in north of LA, and I was like, I do not want to sit in Los Angeles traffic. I am so tired. My back hurts. My feet hurt. My legs hurt. Let's just grab a hotel. So we grabbed a hotel in the San Fernando Valley up there by Six Flags. Anybody ever been up there, the San Fernando Valley? Okay, cool. So we grabbed this cheap little hotel, and then something happened. It must have been around 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning. I awoke to the bed shaking, like, and I mean rumbling, and I could hear the closet doors shaking and rumbling, and I could see the lampstands starting to come off of the tables, and I thought to myself, it was the weirdest thing. Because for those of you that know my wife, there is no way that she would ever do what I thought she was doing. I thought she had gotten up to go to the bathroom and at three o'clock in the morning had decided to run and swan dive onto the bed. So in my mind's eye, I was having this like moment of seeing my wife swan dive onto the bed and the bed is shaking and the doors are shaking and the lampstands are shaking. And on the other hand, I was like, well, this is fun. What, what's What's happening? Of course, after being fully awakened, I realized that my wife had not swan-dived onto the bed. Have you all guessed what happened? Earthquake. It was my first experience of actually being shaken in an earthquake. And it was just a little tremor, I guess, because in talking to native Californians about the San Fernando Valley and my experience, they all kind of smirk at me with this knowing smile. Those that have been through real earthquakes recognize that it was just a mere tremor. It was nothing. But it was enough to shake the bed and open and close the doors of of this hotel room to shake the lampstands there on the lampstand tables. And I got to thinking about it as I was reflecting on this sermon because according to geologists, some would say we're about 200 years overdue for the big one, the big one that may like bury California in the Pacific Ocean. (laughs) And in reflecting on this, it's true. Even the big one will be but a ripple in the pond of God's cosmic plan. As we look at history and as we look forward to our futures in creation, anything and everything in the human experience, be that cities, societies, empires, our plans, our purposes, friends, even our personal, emotional, and spiritual structures, even our most deeply held belief structures, they're all going to be shaken to bedrock. As the author of Hebrews said, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Now, it's so important that we understand as we get this imagery of shaking in our heads that God is not shaking creation in anger and rage, unlike our sort of angry pastors have preached for so many years before me. He does not go before us in anger and rage. God in his mercy is shaking all things out of love. He's shaking all things that are not of himself down to rubble as an act of mercy. Don't forget he is our father. He is our creator. And his love for us, his love for every single one of us is unconditional and infinite. God is shaking anything and everything today in your life, in our lives, that will keep us from him. And it's because of his immeasurable love for us that he does not allow these false kingdoms that we create in rebellion against him to continue to stand. And so whether it's our societies or our personal belief structures, out of love, he shakes them. He shakes, and as he shakes, friends, what we experience is oftentimes terrifying, disorienting. When God comes and begins to shake our systems and our deep belief structures, it can feel violent. For some of you this morning, it may feel cruel. You may find yourself saying, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand why it it feels to me like everything's just being reduced to rubble in my life. But it's so important that we grasp this morning as we get into this topic of resilience that it is God's love and his process of love that begins to shake us down to our foundation. C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to the masses. Now, for us here in 2023, modern day San Diegans, our generation is in the midst of a great shaking, socially, politically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and in these times of great shaking, what we see is that humanity has two primary responses, cynicism and resilience, cynicism and resilience. I'm convinced that what you face as a modern Christian Two primary challenges, exhaustion and cynicism. And our society, collectively, and maybe you this morning, we seem to be choosing cynicism over resilience. And in some cases, justifiably so, if we think about the past few years. We've been through a lot. Plague, political upheaval, racial upheaval, emotional and social angst. These things begin to wear down on our resilience. And so cynicism becomes our sort of mainstay, our sort of default. And in many contexts, this entrenched cynicism is resulting in just a wholesale giving up on life. For example, 2021, a couple years ago, gave rise to the terms quiet quitting. Have you guys heard about this? An Atlantic article, Wall Street Journal article on quiet... How many of you have heard about quiet quitting, just so I know you're with me? Okay, some of you. What about the great resignation? Quiet quitting, for those of you that don't know, is an entire movement within the American workplace where employees decide I'm going to maintain just enough work productivity to keep my job, but I'm going to do the absolute bare minimum. I'm quitting going over and above and beyond. I'm not going to put in extra hours. I'm not going to do the extra work. I'm not going to make sure every T and every I is, every T is crossed and every I is dotted. I'm going to do just enough to make sure I keep my job and get my paycheck, but not much more than that. Now, for some, this quiet kidding, quitting, excuse me it's an act of resistance against the sort of hustle and consumer culture of Western capitalism. For others, quiet quitting is rooted in this frustration. It's this inability to get ahead financially or career-wise, no matter the effort that we put in. And so hands are thrown up in the air and towels are thrown in. And doing less is what we consider best. Now, this quiet quitting leads to what sociologists have termed over the last couple years, the great resignation. The great resignation. The American workforce in mass has been full on resigning from their careers across both blue and white collar environments. And this quitting, this sort of cynicism that leads to a loss of resilience, that leads to a resignation, that just says, you know what, my hands are up in the air, the towel is in, I'm done. Bare minimum, and if not bare minimum, then nothing at all. It's happening in every environment that we exist in as humans. We are giving up politically, tired of it. We are giving up relationally, overwhelmed by not hearing one another any longer, just screaming at each other continually. And we are giving up collectively as a society, spiritually. Every study on the church shows that Western society, modern Western society, especially in urban hubs like San Diego, is in a full religious tailspin. The church is experiencing a massive exodus, particularly in millennials and Gen Z, from the communities of faith, be that Catholic. Be that orthodox, be that Protestant. And so everyone, high paid, low paid, educated, uneducated, politically active, politically absent, believers and unbelievers, we are all collectively disoriented and fragmented. There's this collective uncertainty. There's this wavering. And it's causing hearts to grow hard, as Jesus said would be the case. He said in times of tumultuousness, in times of trouble, in times of shaking, the love of many would grow hard cold. And this cold, hard-heartedness collectively in our culture is making us angry and temperamental. And so many are finding the easiest thing to do about life is just set the bar of expectations super low and cynically assume the worst of everyone and everything in life. And yet you're here this morning because I trust that you want a better way. You wouldn't show up to church on Sunday morning to walk away saying, well, I guess I'm just going to be cynical. You're here for healing. You're here for hope. And there is a better way, and it is this way of resilience. And friends, this resilience is not born out of us clenching our jaw and just tightening up our bootstraps and just grinding through life. Resilience from the Christian perspective is an invitation towards trust and love, towards a deep surrender and a true hope. Track with me on this now. The psychology and the emotional structure of cynicism, the things that cause and build cynicism, they are actually, to live cynically is actually to live the opposite way that we were designed to live as humans. We humans, we are extremely social creatures. We survive because of our social systems. And our systems are built not on cynicism, but on deep trust of one another. We are also inherently spiritual. And so try as we may to ignore or rid ourselves of that pesky God of sort of moral absolutes and transcendence and authority. If you ask the average Joe on the street what they believe today, nine out of 10 are going to say, I believe there's something bigger out there. Belief is our natural disposition. We are hardwired to trust. And friends, resilience, resilience is trust and surrender in action. Resilience is trust what we were designed to do and surrender what we must do in action. And so resilience is a response to a loving God, and this loving God is doing everything necessary to save us from ourselves, including shaking us to our core. Cynicism is the opposite of trust. Cynicism is the opposite of surrender. And most destructively, cynicism is the opposite of love. What you and I want here this morning, as this is why you came to church this morning, We want to trust, and we want to be trusted. That's what we were designed to do, to trust and be trusted. We want to care for others, and we want to be cared for unconditionally. We want to love and to be loved. And cynicism acts like a caustic acid, corroding all of the things that we desire most. And so in essence, friends, cynicism is diminishing our humanity. It's deforming our humanity. Today, if we find ourselves with our hearts bitter or angry or cynical, we are actually less ourselves, less human than God intends us to be. So for us this year as a community, we are posturing ourselves in two ways. Rest as a way of being, resilience as a way of doing. How? We're going to be Training Sabbath, the actual weekly Sabbath practice, a 24-hour period of time to stop, cease all activity, rest, rejoice. We're going to let Sabbath become an anchor of our community as we develop a rule of life, multiple spiritual practices that we want to be practicing together. And so Sabbath lends itself to rest. And as we rest, resilience is born out of that rest, overcoming the exhaustion. And to overcome this cynicism, to become a resilient people, we're going to sit at the feet for like six months of the, one of the most chief cynics of all of antiquity, a man named Koheleth. We start this next week, and we're just going to sit and let him sort of be our, our mascot. He gives voice to the modern urban cynic. He just says everything that we're all saying and thinking and doing. What's the point of this? Why am I doing this? It's all vapor. Why am I working so hard? I quiet quit. I resign. This is Koheleth. And we're going to let him just sort of give voice to where we're at. But then there's a mentor throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. He's the actual author. There's Koheleth, the cynic. And then there's the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. And he steps in and he says once in a while, let's just stop this cynical rant for just a moment and really consider what might make this life worthwhile. Six months of that. But for this morning... Just to lay out the roadmap for a way of resilience. How might we develop? How might you, this week, go into your workplace and into your classrooms with a sense of resilience? You guys ready for this? Here we go. Get to the roots. Live in reality. Let your kingdoms crumble. Get to the roots. Live in reality. Let your kingdoms crumble. This is the way of resilience. This is what's going to carry us through the rest of our lives. A response to a loving God. Who invites us to get to the roots, to live in reality, and to let our kingdoms crumble. Let's start with get to the roots. What I mean by that is we have to let God shake all of our belief structures, all that we are, all of our systems, all of our plans, all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our desires, everything that we are, we have to let God shake that down to bedrock. We have to get to the very roots of our belief structures and then allow God to reorient them according to the Spirit and the Scriptures according to who God is and what he's doing. And so think about it this way. If cynicism and hard-heartedness is the opposite of trust and love and surrender, then we might say that the fountainhead of cynicism, what's causing our cynicism is actually sin, that old-school Bible word, sin. Cynicism is rooted in, it's caused by, the foundations or the roots of cynicism are found in sin that has been done against us, Sin done around us and sin done by us. Let me just flesh each of those out briefly for us. Cynicism is rooted. The roots of cynicism comes about because of the sin that has been done against us. At the root, at the root of so much pain in this life are the horrific wrongs that have been done to you and I. In a broken world, in a wounded world, everyone is wounding one another. And so there is a continual sort of runaway train of pain caused by other people who have done things to us unjustly. Christians and this mass exodus that we're seeing from the church in just droves, they often will cite not a loss of faith in Jesus, not a loss of faith in doctrine, not even really a loss of faith in the Bible. What they will say is church wounds. The church is a cruel place. Over-authoritative leaders, scandals, people who are hypocritical, this is the reason that people will cite for leaving the church. Sin done against us, creating cynicism. People aren't leaving Jesus. They're leaving the wounds inflicted by wounded people. How's that old cliche go? Hurt people hurt people. That's what maybe you're experiencing today. If you've been part of the church for any amount of time in a broken community, you've been wounded by other wounded people. And so cynicism becomes this place of safety, looking at everybody with suspicion, squinted eyes, be careful, danger, another human is in front of you. Parental and familial traumas in varying degrees, some minimal, some extreme. These parental and familial traumas, they run in all of our psychological and emotional backgrounds, sort of like bugs in the operating systems of our souls. They create filters through which we perceive and see and interpret all the events around us. Sin done against us creates cynicism. And I will be honest but respectful and honor Caesar and the emperor as the Bible commands me to, but our civil and social leadership in the modern West is abysmal. We are justified in our mistrust and uncertainty about any leader's actual agenda who is in power over us because the patterns of selfishness and abusiveness and lies have added up. So we cynically stand back, at least I do, and I just wait for the next headlines about this or that scandal. Sin done against us is at the root of the cynicism that we are all wrestling against. It's hardening our hearts. It's causing the love of our life to grow cold, as Jesus said. Number two, though, the roots of cynicism are sin done around us. Sin against us and sin done around us. I don't know if you've noticed, but this cultural moment finds us swimming in an aquarium of cynicism. It's the air that we breathe And honestly, it has become somewhat in vogue and culturally acceptable to be suspicious and cynical. By my estimation, the only belief that's considered socially respectable in this moment is a healthy sense of cynical doubt about every other belief. What you're allowed to talk about over a cup of coffee with your friend is how cynical and doubtful you are of people in authority and any sort of truth claims and anything that might change your life. You've got to be suspicious. I respect that. But the minute somebody stands up and says, I'm just kind of surrendered in trust, you're cast out of the social fold. Who are you, you naive, silly little fool? Cynicism is in vogue. One of my dear friends, Josh Butler, I can't recommend any, any of his books, read all of his books, all of his thoughts, all of his blogs. But Josh describes this, this contagion, this phenomena of social cynicism He describes it as this desperate grasping for what he calls street cred. Josh writes, doubt is hip. The desire to fit in with the cultural ethos of our moment is strong. And that's why so many deconversion stories sound like everyone's reading off of the same script. It's the well-worn cliches signaling conformity to accepted norms. Sin done against us. Pain causes cynicism. Sin done around us. The social norms by which we feel accepted, is creating this entrenched cynicism. And then finally, we got to face this one, friends. Sin done by us. You know we were going there. Sin done by us. Sin by what we have actually done. Now, for most of us, cynicism is a sophisticated psychological and emotional self-protection mechanism. At least it is for me. We are trying to protect ourselves from the terrible things around us, done to us. And we are also trying to protect ourselves from those things that we planned that did not come to fruition because that hurts. Now, here's the linchpin. Here's the issue. The affluent West, that's where we live. This modern society that we live in has convinced us of an unbelievably untrue lie. And the lie is this. Here in Western modern society, we are told that things will always only be getting better, always upward and to the right. And there's this equation that we're given. If we do this and we do that, be that whatever that front end of that equation is, you go to school, you get married, you have this many kids, you have your white picket fence. If you do the things, then you'll have this life upward and to the right all the way. And then you punch in your part of the equation. I did this. I checked that box. I added that. I put that subtraction sign in there, and it doesn't work work out. The other end of the equation does not go according to the myth that we've been given. The plans don't work out. In fact, we expected pleasure and there's pain. And so we find ourselves psychologically and emotionally becoming cynical, self-protective. And let me just address the church, you believers in this room. In this context of extreme comfort that we've been raised in and affluence there's this subtle entitled expectation that we all develop unconsciously. And this subtle entitled expectation has deformed modern Christianity into a sophisticated self-help program. So now we Christians, we come and we do the right prayers and we go to the right meetings and we have our times of silence and we're even practicing Sabbath with our community every single week. And we punch in our Christian code into into the equation and it should take us upward and to the right and then it doesn't. Our sophisticated self-help program in Jesus' name didn't work out the way that we thought it would because God in mercy and love is shaking our sophisticated Christian self-help program. He's shaking the equations of modern humanity. He's shaking them to bedrock. He's breaking them. And he is inviting all of us to a real Christianity A real Christianity, which is an act of radical self-denial in total submission to a cosmic risen king who is making all things right, but he is making all things right in his way and in his time. And so while our cynicism this morning there in your seat or here standing before you, it may be a sophisticated self-protection mechanism. But that doesn't make it any less dehumanizing. It doesn't any less in any way corrode my trust and my love and my surrender. And therefore, my self-help and my self-protection mechanisms of cynicism are not any less sin in the eyes of my loving father. And my father is inviting me to surrender for my greatest flourishing and to fulfill his good plans through me and for me and for the world. And then finally, I'll cap this last point off with this. If we get deep enough into the roots of our cynicism, we may find that our hard-heartedness is sometimes just a downright deliberate and conscious decision that we make because we want to do what we want to do. We want to ignore that pesky, cosmic, moral, transcendent authority. And so the way seems better for us to say, I swim in an aquarium of cynicism. I've been wounded and hurt. Therefore, I'm going to go and do what I want to do. And we flat out cynically go our way thinking that it will be the better option than trust and obedience. So resilience, coming back now to our big topic, resilience as a way of doing first gets to the roots of our cynicism, This week, for the rest of our lives, over and over, every day, we have to face these various monsters of sin against us, sin around us, sin done by us. We have to face these monsters and spend time with our hearts in our quiet times, in silence and solitude, on days of Sabbath, in community, here on Sunday mornings, in prayer, in the scriptures. We have to spend time with our hearts, and we really do have to consider deeply what wounds from the past are governing my present perspectives And we have to remember Jesus knew that these sins would be committed against us, and he has healing and forgiveness for us. We have to consider deeply, how am I entrenched in the sin around me? Because this sin around me has created these false realities. These false scripts and false narratives have been spun. And the more that we recognize sin around us spinning these false realities, we begin to see how false they are. We begin to realize, oh, maybe I'm not actually in control of my future. Maybe I'm not the master of my faith like I've been told since I was six. Maybe politics aren't going to be the fix-all. Therefore, maybe I don't need to be as passionately crazy about my political position maybe more money and more material things aren't going to actually ease these deeper longings that I have. Maybe being smarter and faster and more beautiful is not the way of actual human dignity and value. And so the sin done around us and these false scripts create this false reality. And resilience looks it right in the face, gets to the root of it and says, I'm going to live in real reality. Resilience lives in reality. Now back to our teaching text for the final points here this morning. Understand something about the author, Hebrews. The author of Hebrews was writing to this fledgling community of Christians who were being shaken to their very core, like you and I, in some measure. And the author was trying to help his readers find ways to face the brutal realities and the disappointments of life without melting down, without quiet quitting or full on resigning. And so to find ways to stand solid, he pointed them forward to their futures in the present moment. To do so, the author pointed them towards the realities of eternal life, not an escapist eternal life. Christians, if you don't get anything from this teaching this morning, please take this away from this time together. When the biblical authors talk about eternal life, they are not just talking about some future utopia that we hope to escape from this mess to. When the biblical authors talk about eternal life, they are talking about a quality of life that exists then and now, right now. You and I are living eternal lives in Christ right now. Eternity, heaven on earth, is now here in this place. It's just broken. It's progressing. It's making its way forward. And so as the author of Hebrews Points his people from their brokenness and their resignation and their cynicism. He points them towards a reality that exists in their souls in that moment, in probably Italy, is where that little community was. For us in San Diego, right now, a quality of life, a reality that exists right here. And this is the life that Jesus called the abundant life. That's why you came to church this morning. I want that. I want the abundant life. It starts with looking cynicism right in its roots. And then it says, how do I live into the realest reality that God has given to me, created for me, was crucified to assure me of? And this eternal life, eternity will be perfect trust in all of humanity. Eternity will be absolute surrender with no struggle. And eternity will be a life of everlasting love. The very thing that we're all longing for. So to the roots of our cynicism, we go and we say, I must forgive those who have sinned against me as Jesus forgave me. I must repent of buying into the sin around me and the sin that I've been doing because it's hardening my heart. It's creating cynicism. And as we forgive and as we repent, these realities of God's present kingdom, future, and now become our greater lived experience. I just want to outline for you, and I put these up on the screens for you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 23 through 24 I broke it down into four categories or four realities that you and I are living right now as believers. And these realities should create an astounding sense of resilience in the moment that we find ourselves. Number one, we have been put into, we exist now in a real society, a true society, a society the way that God intended. Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Those images, Mount Zion, city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, those are all images that represent God's eternal reign over all of creation. Heaven coming to earth, forming a society according to his ways. You and I are the very inbreaking of that. We, the church, are the inbreaking of that. In all of our brokenness, in all of our failing, in all of our cynicism, in all of our hard-heartedness, despite that, the truest truth, the most real reality that God has given to us is that we now have come to Mount Zion, where he reigns, he rules in our souls, and over this city, the living God's city, heavenly Jerusalem. The Greek here, but you have come, it's in what Greek scholars call the active perfect tense, active perfect, which means it's something that has happened with ongoing effect all the way for the rest of existence. This has already happened. This isn't something that's happening in the future. If you want resilience to be your way for the rest of this year and all the way until the king comes or we pass on to be with him, you must live out the reality that he reigns over you right now fully and completely, totally in your soul and let that take further, deeper, fuller effect in every facet of your life. Number two, we have come now to a real community or a real family, a real family, the way that humanity was designed to be. You have come to thousands upon thousands, verse 22 and 23 of Hebrews 12. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. And so in this present moment, we sit in this metaphysical and mystical community comprised of humans and spiritual beings. And notice what's at the center of it. Not cynicism, not anger, not suspicion, not lashing out, but a joyful assembly. This is where God wants us to exist. Here in this aquarium of cynicism, our friends, our neighbors, our family members can and should walk into a community like this and walk away saying, joy, joy can exist, and a family can actually love each other. Notice we are called the church of the firstborn. It's this brand new identity of having been adopted into the family of God where we are now called children of God and whose names are written in heaven. Our identities are no longer built by striving for false values. We no longer build our identities on rich or poor, powerful, oppressed, educated, uneducated, all ethnicities. We don't build our identities in those places as as our foundation. We've all been renamed children of God. And so our truest truth, our realist reality that we live out today is we are under the reign of God in his society together in this mess called culture. And we are a true family living with one another, learning how to live that out, learning how to forgive each other as we hurt each other, learning how not to leave, learning how to stay committed, learning how to love one another, becoming a true community of love. Number three, this truest truth, this realist reality, we have come to justice, true justice, true justice. Hebrews 12, 23, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We look forward to a day when all wrongs will physically, tangibly be made right. All wrongs that we have done will be fully forgiven and forgotten. All wrongs against us will be forgiven and forgotten. All the wrongs and wickedness happening in this world right now will be made right because we have come. In the past, with ongoing effect, it is now to the judge of all, to God, who has made the spirits of the righteous perfect. That would be you and I by the blood of Jesus. All wrongs having been made right by his life and his sacrifice. And then finally, number four, we have come to covenant. To Jesus' commitment to us that nothing is going to stop this from happening in fulfillment. This is going to be fulfilled completely. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so we now today... Rather than living in cynicism, we live in the certainty of Jesus' promise to us that his life satisfied our failings, that his death cleansed us and washed us and has accepted us. His blood now speaks a better word than Abel, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain, who became envious of his brother Abel, became jealous, allowed that to take root in his heart and it ended in murder. Abel's blood, speaking of strife, and cynicism, but Jesus' blood today speaks to us of forgiveness and mer- mercy and acceptance. These are the four, the, these and so many more are your reality, Christian. But we have to slow down. We have to get to the roots of our cynicism. We have to spend time with these truths meditating. And then finally, we have to let our kingdoms crumble. And this is where we'll wrap up and come to communion. We have to let our kingdoms crumble. By not refusing his voice, Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Let him remove everything. Today his voice may be speaking to you, and we have a decision to make. We can respond with a deeper surrender. We can respond with an openness to his guidance. We can respond with a sense of, I'm struggling to hope, but I want to hope. Or each of us have a response when his voice comes, however he's speaking to you today, in your scenario, where we can say, you know what, I'm just going to dig in my heels. I'm just going to harden my heart. I'm just going to press on and keep doing things my way. Or we can stop resisting and let him remove everything. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken that has created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. I think the point that I wanted you each to meditate on as we get ready to come to communion in this last section of Hebrews was what is he trying to shake right now that you're just trying to hold up? How many of you feel like you're trying to hold up a pyramid of marbles emotionally or socially? Yeah, it's okay. Raise your hand. I do. Do you feel like your life right now is just a pyramid of marbles and you're doing everything you can to keep it together? Let it go. Let it go. But Dan, my future, who will protect me? Who will provide for me? Who will care for me? He will. But he won't until your little house of cards has finally crumbled. The house of cards that you call control, most of us call it, most of us call it planning. And it's true, we should plan, we should be wise, we should be prudent. But are you anxious? Are you just grasping onto your plans saying, these are the way of flourishing. This plan, this future, this expectation, give me it. And then you walk about with your pyramid of marbles held up to your God saying, bless this, hold this pyramid of marbles together. And he's just like, think, knocks one off. You're like, no, my pyramid, no. And then he starts messing around with like some of the mid part of the pyramid. Like he's like, removes that. And like the top half falls down and you start freaking out. What are you gonna do when he gets to your belief structures? What you actually believe about who you are. Most of us right now in this room believe that we are shamed. We feel guilty. We feel like we deserve to be alone. Those are lies. We feel wounded, we feel scared, we feel anxious. And he's coming to those belief structures. We feel like we're not valuable. We believe we're not valuable. And he's wanting to take those things. And so then we build our pyramid of marbles of value and worth and love and acceptance. We build it up to him by what we do, by how we look, by how we think, by how we act, by how we're accepted by others. And then he comes and he just begins to remove those things. And today he invites you to let the pyramid of marbles go. Whatever you're the most anxious about, what would it look like to completely for five minutes this morning as we get ready to come to communion, let go? And here's what it would look like. Worship him with reverence. This is where the whole thing caps off. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, cynicism says, I don't know. It feels like it's shaking. If it is shaking, it's your kingdom that's shaking, not the kingdom of God. If it feels fragile, it's because it's your kingdom that's shaking. It's whatever you've built up in your mind of greatest value that must be happening in this world. If that feels like it's falling apart, that's because it's not the kingdom of heaven. But underneath this shaking, let us be thankful. Begin to just give thanks to God this morning, Lord. And this is so difficult, so difficult, Lord. I am so thankful and I worship you this morning with reverence and awe because you're a consuming fire. My dreams, consume them in your fires of holiness. The way that I understand my value, what people think about me, what they say about me, consume that. It's yours. Let that false identity just crumble. Because here my value is I am loved by you. I have come into this this angelic host of a trillion angels who are joyfully assembled. And I stand in the midst of that, made one with you. That is my deepest core identity. I am your loved child. And anything outside of that that feels fragile and uncertain, right now in this moment with my family that you have planted me with, a real community, a real family, I just let it go. I surrender it. And I come to the reality of this covenant that you made with me, Jesus. A covenant that you were crucified. You signed this commitment to me in your blood, saying, son, I will never leave you. Son, I will never forsake you. Son, I will always make you beautiful. Son, I have saved you, and I will save you. You are secure. Rest. With our eyes closed this morning, What is he asking you to surrender to him? We're just going to take a moment here and just respond.